book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. The show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you are interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, Jill Paul returns to chat with me about a beautiful rival. Jill has written 12 historical novels, many of them reevaluating fascinating 20th century women who she thinks have been marginalized or misjudged by historians. Her books have topped bestseller lists in the U.S. and U.K. and have been translated into 23 languages. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drink, A-G, the number one, dot com, slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Jill. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you so much for inviting me. This is wonderful to be here. I'm thrilled to pieces that you're back to chat about a beautiful rival. Thank you so much, Cindy. It's wonderful to be here. And I think this is your third time. I meant to look before we started talking, but I'm almost positive it is. And I always tell people how much fun you are to interview and how much you love to swim in the very, very cold water. That always sticks with me about you. <laughs> I do. I swim every day. It's, um, it's essential for my mental health. <laughs> and I remember there was a story, I think it was Claire McIntosh, her recent mystery, where on New Year's Day in Wales, they go out into really cold water. It's like a tradition. Mm. And when I was talking to her, I said, oh, Jill Paul does that all the time, not just on New Year's Day. <laughs> yes, I know. It's becoming more and more popular in the UK anyway, the wild swimming thing. It's supposed to have lots of health benefits, so long as it doesn't kill you getting into the cold water. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's talk about a beautiful rival. Before we dive into my questions, will you give me a quick synopsis? This is a story of two formidable women who basically invented the modern beauty industry, Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. If you've ever bought a moisturizer or face cream that claims that it will reverse aging or make you look younger again. 
you've got them to blame because they started this whole marketing drive to persuade women that it was their duty to look beautiful and they absolutely had to buy their products in order to to get there. And they created a vast global industry. Now, the, the cosmetics bit of it is not particularly what I admire about them. Both of them were completely self-made. They didn't come from wealthy families. They didn't have rich husbands. They couldn't get bank loans in that era. They just started from the ground up and built these massive global empires. And what interested me most was you might think that they'd have something in common, but instead they were bitter rivals. They had a feud that lasted basically five decades. And um, the minute I, I saw that, you know, the rivalry story, I thought, ooh, there's, there's a novel in there. <laughs> so that was my starting point. You always write about such fascinating women, and I'm interested in how you target them. I know from some of your past stories how you've learned about people, but how did you learn about these two? And did you learn about one first and decide to write about her and then think, oh, I will add the other? Or how did all of that come about? I do a lot of Googling around and leaping down rabbit holes. I also read quite a lot of nonfiction and sometimes, you know, an odd sentence or footnote will leap out at me and I'll think, oh, that's interesting. There's maybe a germ of something there. With Helen and Elizabeth, I was looking for a new subject and on paper, two women that worked in the cosmetics industry would not particularly have drawn me, but it was that rivalry that I thought I'm going to explore. So I then looked a bit further and I'll write a pitch of about a page long and I send off to my New York editor half a dozen pitches. So I give her a choice every time and she's very decisive. She'll look down them, she'll go, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, that one. <laughs> and hopefully she's she's right in her choosing. She's um, very experienced. So I, I tend to go with her judgment. And uh, that's my process. I'm looking for usually an early 20th century story, a woman's story that's got some kind of resonance for, for us today. So they may have what we would now call a Me Too story, but of course they dealt with them quite differently back in the past. They put up with so much that we wouldn't dream of putting up with now. But by writing about that, I can you know shine a light on the present day as well. Do you keep that list and then just keep adding to it? Or if you've given it to your editor and she picks one and doesn't pick the others, do you shed that and start over again? If she hasn't picked up on one, I tend to, I mean, I keep all my lists, but I tend not to go backwards. I'll just go forwards and think of the next thing. But uh, yeah, we're, we're actually at that place now where I'm trying to decide what the next one's going to be. And I'm looking through all the past lists. And then sometimes that leads on to another thought. By the way, if any of your listeners have any ideas, do get in touch with me in social media. Because if I, if I write a story that somebody else has, has suggested to me, then I will dedicate the book to them. <laughs> I remember that from the past. I was yes. thinking about that when I was mentioning how you get your ideas, because I remembered in one of your earlier books, that's where the idea came from. Jackie and Maria was suggested by a reader in Athens, Barbara Dukas. And uh, as the minute she said to me, I thought, oh my goodness, why has nobody done that? The fact that these two incredible women were rivals for the love of Aristotle and Asses is, is just such a great angle on the whole Kennedy story. And Maria has a vast fan club as well extraordinary woman. She does. I think there may be a new book coming out about her soon as well. Daisy Goodwin has written a novel about her coming out next January. I'm desperately trying to get my hands on a finished copy at the moment. <laughs> Got it. I just saw it come across my desk, like an email about mm -hmm. it on, one, on a list. And I was like, oh yes, wait a minute. I remember reading about her from Jill Ball. Yeah. No, I love Maria. She's so wonderful. 
And, um, you know, just Googling her and listening to her voice puts chills down your spine every time. Well, it had to be so interesting doing research on these two women. Can you tell me about that? There aren't many biographies of them. There's a fantastic website called cosmeticsandskin.com that lists, it's got all their advertisements, all their salon addresses and all their products. And it's not talking about them in particular, but it's just really comprehensive. And it's not just them, it's got all the great names in beauty. I, I recommend having a route around in that if anybody's interested. I looked up newspaper and magazine articles about them. And uh, Lindy Woodhead wrote a book called War Paint back in 2003, I think. Um, there was then a PBS documentary, The Powder and the Glory, in 2008. And of course, the Broadway show, which I never saw. I think it came out 2017, but I've been able to watch bits of it on YouTube. So, of course, that was one of my decisions because this story of their rivalry had been told in these three different media a nonfiction book, a documentary, and a Broadway show. I thought, do I have anything to add? And I watched them all. I read Lindy's book and I thought, yeah. What a historical fiction can do is presume to tell you how they were feeling about all these events going on around about them, you know, whereas nonfiction can just tell you what happened and where it happened and maybe why it happened. But I can step inside their shoes and say, this is how Helena was feeling when this happened. And this is what Elizabeth thought about that. And obviously it's, it's made up, it's invention, it's fiction. But I try to make it as emotionally, emotionally plausible as I can you know, within the context of my story. It's not like a biography because biographies cover all the detail of the whole life. As a novelist, you're looking for a story within that life and where's the best place to begin and where's the best place to end and what's the the narrative arc. That's what you need to find from all the information that you've read and just try and pull out that arc and turn it into a novel. It is such an interesting story and I think you're exactly right that nonfiction serves the purpose of telling the story of the women from the point of view of exactly what happened and backing it up with footnotes and the details of their lives. But with fiction, you can really tell their story and what they were thinking with the knowledge that you have from nonfiction. And I love that because it brings them to life. I hope so. I mean, that's my goal. That's what I really want to try and get to the emotional core of why they made the decisions they made why they hated each other so much. <laughs> that, was, that was one of my big questions. Also, what made them such formidable businesswomen? Because, you know, Elizabeth came from a very, very poor background in Canada. And you can imagine, yes, she wanted to better herself. She wanted to move up in the world. But lots of people come from poor backgrounds and they don't start global empires from scratch. And she was just more driven than most, you know. And Helena as well. She'd traveled from her homeland of Poland to Australia and she needed to find a way to earn a living. And she started importing this special cream, face cream that she persuaded Australian women would give them complexions like hers. And she could have just stopped there. She had a nice little import business. She had one salon. But instead, she just went on. She built, she expanded, she opened up in new countries, she launched new products. And in fact, I think the rivalry once they came head to head, when Helena opened a Manhattan salon in 1915, I think that rivalry drove them both to get bigger and better as well. I think Elizabeth almost immediately improved her products after Helena arrived. Helena stepped up her marketing and um, 
was really, I think at the beginning, more the aggressor in the rivalry. She arrived in this new country and immediately set off on a road tour going around going around the entire United States, explaining to department store assistants how they could best sell Helena Rubenstein products. You know, which for Elizabeth, who was the incumbent, that must have been a bit irritating. You can see that. I was just going to ask you if you felt that their rivalry really ended up helping them both succeed more, because it certainly seemed that way in the story, that without each other, they might not have ever been the successes that they were. I think they'd have been successful anyway. You know, before they met, Elizabeth already had her Manhattan salon and a Washington DC one and several products. She had more products at the beginning, whereas Helena had had two salons in Australia and Sydney and Melbourne, as well as London and Paris. So they were already successful. But yes, I think definitely the rivalry drove them. And this, you know, there are stories of this throughout history. There's lots of people who've been driven, you know, athletes trying to best somebody else's world record or Scientists are very competitive, I believe, you know, who's going to come up with the vaccine for this particular disease. And um, yeah, they definitely, in business, they were rivals. I think there are other examples. I think Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were very competitive. And now, of course, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg challenging each other to a cage fight is is an extreme example. I was just thinking about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, though. I do Mm -hmm. think that you have these rivalries that really drive people and they end up even more successful than they would have been because they've got somebody else they're trying to best. Yes. And Lennon and McCartney and the Beatles is another example. You know, without Paul McCartney and John Lennon um, competing against each other as songwriters, I don't think they would have been half as successful as they were. I think you're exactly right. Well, there are so many fun tidbits in your book, and that's what I love about historical fiction like how Elizabeth Arden's signature red door came about. Can you tell that story to my listeners? In 1912, there was a suffrage march in New York, and the books disagree on whether Elizabeth Arden handed out red lipstick to the suffragettes. I think that's very unlikely, actually. But some of them were wearing a bright red lipstick, and it became associated with the suffrage movement. And so when Elizabeth opened her Fifth Avenue salon, she gave it a red door in that very striking colour. Obviously, women's suffrage was something that she identified with strongly. And she's gone on to have, you know, to use Red Door as a a label for several of her products that are still bestsellers today. And all of her salons have Red Doors. And that's one of the things that always stood out to me about her because that's my favorite color and it always has been. So I love her Red Doors. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're terrific. Whereas Helena's salons were works of art. I mean, they were like half art galleries. She displayed her own collection in there, sculptures, paintings, original Man Ray lips in one of her Fifth Avenue salon windows. And uh, she, she was a huge art collector. And this is one of the things I really admire about her, aside from her business career. She was big on supporting young artists and buying their work to help them to grow their career. She had a, a very substantial collection of African art and um, all the kind of the new Picasso and Braque and her apartment was filled with them, but also her salon. She used her own artworks to decorate them. So walking in, you're seeing the art and getting your face treatment as well. Well, and you compare and contrast their salons in terms of what you just said, that Helena had the kind of modern, the art, everything was cutting edge, where Elizabeth Arden's were more traditional, kind of maybe sometimes a little bit stuck in the past. Yeah. And that, that, that was very interesting as well. Yeah. 
Elizabeth liked pink packaging. Pink was her favourite colour in just about everything. She wore pink a lot. She liked the shade Paradise Pink, which um, she made her packaging designers try and reproduce exactly. She had her girls dressed in Paradise Pink tunics. And uh, her salons were very basic, you know, big mirrors and, and, and chandeliers and um, marble floors and upmarket because Elizabeth was trying to emulate the wealthy woman who came to her salon. She wanted to be like them. She had reinvented herself from this very poor background that she'd come from in Canada. And she tried to learn to speak like the upper class women that she treated, to their mannerisms, what they wore, how they interacted with each other. And uh, yeah, that was her dream to be accepted in what she called polite society. <laughs> I love that term, polite society. Yeah. You were doing this fabulous campaign on Twitter where you're tweeting out details about the women, and I am enjoying checking them out all of the time. Oh, thank you. It's my, I've done a fact a day campaign for the last few books, and it does seem to get people interested, I hope. And uh, I just choose a little fact that's inspired by the book and stick it up with a picture, and it let, just lets people know the book's coming without... Um, it's always very hard, Cynthia, as an author, to to know how to publicize your own books and, and without leaping up and down saying, look at me, which is, is not, it's not a good look. So I just like sticking out my little facts. And if people are interested in them, maybe they'll want to read more. And those old photos are fascinating. I've been poring over them. But yes, this is yeah. a much better way to promote than to say, here's my book, here's my book, here's my book. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so interesting. So I, I'm looking forward to them. I check Twitter every day for them. Oh, thank you. Well, did you end up feeling more of a kinship with one of them versus the other? Interesting question. I think it's harder to like Elizabeth because she's a snob and she shares a general anti-Semitism that was, that was prevalent in the day. I wouldn't say she's particularly strong on it, but she has that attitude. So it's harder to like her. But right from the start, I felt that she was one of the loneliest people in the world. I think she's got all the money. She's got the jewels, but she still hasn't found what she really wanted. And maybe that was true throughout her life. Whereas Helena also was not very happy. You know, she just worked 24 hours a day and supported lots of other people. She was a shocking wife and mother, Helena. <laughs> really terrible. And, um, but she, there's more to admire about her in a way in her support of young artists, in, um, the fact that she stands up to anti-Semitism. For example, she could have changed her name and, and many Jewish people did when they came to the States to start businesses or start careers. They changed their name to one that wasn't obviously Jewish. And Helena decided, absolutely not, this is my name. And she even, you know, she she played on, she looked exotic. She always wore her very her hair scraped back and photographed in a particular way with her big jewelry. And and she liked that association. And uh, there was absolutely no way she was going to hide behind somebody else's name. <laughs> and she called people out when she felt that they were mistreating her or refusing to deal with her because she was Jewish. Oh, absolutely. And I love this story that, uh, and this is absolutely true. When she first tried to lease a Fifth Avenue salon, she was stopped from doing so. And she felt that this was because of her Jewishness. So in the 1930s, when she went to try and rent a triplex penthouse in Park Avenue, and word came back that no, it was felt that she was too Jewish, 
she just had had enough and she had the money to do this then. She bought the entire building and moved in. <laughs> and um, wouldn't we all like to have the money to just, you know, deal with the bigots in that way? I loved that story as well. I just felt that she really did show her cards and she was happy. She was proud of who she was and she mm -hmm. wanted people to know that. And she stood up to those that tried to put her down. And I loved that. And I agree with you. Elizabeth Arden was lonely. She's so unlikable. And so it makes it difficult, I think, to get behind her because she's mm -hmm. not very nice to people. But you do understand it's because she's so driven and she is lonely. So you do feel some sympathy for her, but sometimes you were just like, oh, if you could just be a little bit nicer, it would be easier to like you, you know? I know. She did a lot of philanthropic work, Elizabeth Arden. And I think one of her big redeeming features is her passion for her horses, which yes. was absolutely genuine. They were her babies. She didn't have children, but the horses were her babies. That was such an interesting connection that she worked with Tom Smith. Hmm. Have you read the book Seabiscuit about the the, yes. It's fantastic, isn't it, about this rickety little horse that he trained to be a national champion in the 1930s. It was just such an amazing story. And uh, yeah, I was astonished because I'd read Seabiscuit before and I was astonished when I heard that Elizabeth Arden came across him and hired him and uh, stuck by him as well. Um, there was uh, in 1940, I can't remember, 44, I think, he was accused of having doped a horse before a race and he was banned for a year. And Elizabeth, who was famous for sacking employees, it was said that working for her was like living in a revolving door. You know, she was bouncing people every week, but she stuck by Tom. She knew a good thing when she found one in him. I love horse stories and I really love the Seabiscuit story. So I thought that was just so interesting that he appeared mm. in this book. I love history that way where you see somebody you would not expect to be in one story showing up. And I thought that was interesting, their connection. My novels keep joining up where something from another novel pops up. And um, for example, it, I've written about Wallace Simpson in the past in my novel, Another Woman's Husband. And lo and behold, she appears in A Beautiful Rival. I didn't invite her. I just was reading that Elizabeth Arden went to her salons in London at the time that she was having an affair with the Prince of Wales. And then that um, Wallace used Elizabeth's salon in Paris. So she had to be in the book. I thought, okay. <laughs> Wallace Simpson really seems to get around. I feel like she shows up in so many stories. Well, I'm kind of writing about the glamorous jet set in the 20th century, and she was part of that. I have some very odd connections between my books. For example, Wallace's second husband, Ernest Simpson, shared a New York shipping office with Aristotle Onassis, who, of course, I'd written about in Jackie Maria. That's <laughs> just a random little fact. But I thought, how come my books keep linking up? <laughs> I love that. You need to create some kind of timeline or family chart or something on your website. I should do that. That's a great <laughs> idea. Well, what surprised you the most when writing this one? I really knew very, very little about Helena and Elizabeth before I started writing it. So everything was a surprise. You know, the art, the um, love of horses. There were various things, I suppose. I didn't know quite how vitriolic the rivalry had got, how much they the lengths to which they went to sabotage each other. I mean, it started quite gently with, well, I'd say gently, they planted negative stories in the press about each other, tried to sabotage each other's advertising campaigns, copied each other's products. But then they began poaching staff. And in one particular incident in the 1930s, Elizabeth poached 11 of Helena's sales team in one fell swoop. And then 
Helena hired Elizabeth's ex-husband. It was, you know, it was just heating up the whole time. But of course, in the 1930s, there's this other thing going on, which is that Helena's salons in Berlin and German-occupied cities were getting daubed with anti-Jewish graffiti, while Elizabeth was dining with Nazis in Paris through her sister Gladys and her new husband. And uh, you know that contrast, you know, made the, the story I think a lot darker. It's not just two women sniping at each other over cosmetics. It's really getting serious by that stage in the novel. Funnily enough, I came across an FBI file that's been released on Elizabeth Arden. Somebody has written to the FBI, and it's all redacted, it's all blacked out, so we don't know who wrote the letter accusing Elizabeth Arden of being pro-Nazi. And it had gone across the desk of J. Edgar Hoover, and he'd stamped like, no action required. And uh, I just thought, was it Helena that wrote that letter? Who knows? I wouldn't put it past her. Will they ever release that where it is not redacted? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't been in touch with the FBI. (laughs) You haven't? They haven't let you know? (laughs) No, I'm hoping that I'm under their radar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It would just be so interesting to know who sent the letter. Yeah, absolutely. It could also be um, Tommy Lewis, Elizabeth's first husband, was very bitter about a divorce where he left, you know, one of the wealthiest women in America and got very, very little money out of it because she just wrapped him up in, in legal legal stuff so that he, he, you know, she threatened him basically. And so he, he walked away with very little after all these years of marriage. So it could have been somebody associated with him as well that wrote the letter. I mean, I think Elizabeth had enemies. Or any number of the people that she bounced. Yes, yes. She was big on bouncing. <laughs> she was big on bouncing. And that's such a hilarious term, I think. So it was just funny, but it's, I guess, the one she landed on and ended up using a lot. I know. Yeah, very odd. And some of the girls that she bounced went on to set up their own um, salons, like Dorothy Gray was one of the more successful of those. And uh, yeah, she hated competition, Elizabeth. In the world, everybody, everywhere, there's going to be competition. But she just, I think she feared losing it all. She was scared that you know, she might go back to the poverty that she'd grown up in in Canada, which obviously she wasn't going to by that by that stage. But uh, yeah, and so she got obsessed with Dorothy Gray and Helena, and she actually missed the big rivals who were coming, starting to come through, who were Charles Revson, who started Revlon, and Estee Lauder, of course, who became even bigger. But, you know, every industry, it proves you're doing so. I think Helena and Elizabeth laid the groundwork of the industry for these people to come along later. And uh, they they should have been proud. And there was enough business and enough money to go around. Clearly, because now there are so many cosmetics makers. So, yes, there was enough business to go around. But it is hard. And I guess when you're one of the initial people, you're thinking, I'd really like to hold on to my market share. Sure. Absolutely. Gosh, I'm so glad I work in a an industry that's not competitive in that way. You know, authors really aren't, or maybe in very, very rare cases. But when somebody else, when a friend of mine has a huge bestseller, I'm just delighted for them because I think the more books that are sold, the more they're creating a market for books. They're bringing in more readers. It's just, it's a win-win all round. Well, I think that's exactly right. And like in the case of Renee Rosen's book about Estee Lauder, I mean, you know, it's wonderful. You compare the two books together and then I think it's more sales because you're like, okay, we've got these two women and we've got Estee Lauder, buy them together, read them together. It really paints a portrait of the early years of an industry. So I agree with you completely. 
I absolutely adore Renee's book. It's just extraordinary. I love the picture she paints of this brash woman that marches up to strangers in the street and says, do you realise you're wearing the wrong shade of lipstick for your skin tone? It's just, you can picture her. She steps out of the pages. I love everything that Renee writes, actually. I think she's just brilliant. I agree completely. And I just think the two of your books together are outstanding and such a great way to market the industry and the early years of it. Huh. We've got different publishers or we could have put them together as a box set. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, before we wrap up, and we're going to get to do a spoiler-filled episode after this, but before we wrap up the episode for the main show, tell me what you've read recently that you really liked. Well, I was going to mention Renee's Estee Lauder novel, Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl, which I read much earlier this year, but I totally recommend any of your readers to go and find that. Now, there's a, a an English author called Elizabeth Fremantle. I don't know if you've come across her, Cindy. I haven't. This year, the book of hers that came out in July was called Disobedient. And it's about the 16th century Italian artist Artemisia Gentileschi. And she's just the most superb writer. I've read everything Elizabeth's written. But in this, this woman artist, very early woman artist, steps out of the pages living in Rome in a very brutal, misogynist society where, you know, her honour is everything. And a woman that has been assigned to chaperone her makes a stupid, terrible error that leads to a catastrophic chain of circumstances. And uh, Elizabeth is a beautiful writer. I won't tell you any more about it, but I guarantee you, absolutely guarantee you, you'll like it. Elizabeth Fremantle has also written a novel called Queen's Gambit, which is about Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's sixth wife. And it's been made into a movie called Firebrand starring Jude Law. And that's coming out, I think, later this year, but uh, the date's still to be announced. And she just is a writer that, to me, she she's in the same territory as Hilary Mantel was, but she's better. She's kind of, she's very character and plot driven while her prose is just gorgeously poetic and rich. And uh, I'd recommend anything that she's written. So that's my big recommendation for you. But my other favourite book of the year, which I'm sure is true for so many other people, is Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, which I, I just love, love, loved. And it's so clever because first person is very hard to write. I've never written a novel in first person myself, but Barbara Kingsolver just absolutely nails it. You're rooting for this poor demon kid right from the start and, and you're on his side and you're desperately scared for him and you just want his life to work out. I've heard it's phenomenal, but also incredibly grim. So I have not picked it up yet, but I will at some point. Oh, I definitely would recommend it. Yeah. Good. Well, Jill, I'm so glad you came back on my show. This has been delightful as always. And I look forward to our Patreon only spoiler filled conversation in a few minutes. And I also look forward to everyone reading A Beautiful Rival. Oh, thank you so much, Cindy. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, 
and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.